Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, supporting family caregivers of older adults through times of stress and isolation. A panel discussion. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on July 16th, 2020. In this podcast, we will hear from a panel discussion that will discuss identifying strategies to help caregivers and their families cope, particularly in the stress of uncertainty and the transitions that are going on now with the public health crisis of COVID-19. The panel discussion will be moderated by Carol Regan. Carol is a Senior Advisor to Community Catalyst Center for Consumer Engagement and Health Innovation. The panelists include Kathy Kelly, the Executive Director of the Family Caregiver Alliance, Dr. Aaron Emery Terruccio, an Associate Professor of Geriatric and Rehabilitation Psychology and Geriatric Medicine, and Co-Director of the Center for Excellence in Aging at Rush University Medical Center, and Brian Godfrey, a Clinical Social Worker at UNC Geriatrics Clinic. Lastly, the panel answers questions from the audience. This Q&A session will be moderated by Alana Nur, a senior consultant with the Lewin Group. Now we're going to move into a panel discussion um, offering some scenarios that we've learned about from many of you in the field and wanted to talk about that with the faculty. So the first scenario and, and between, uh, the first scenario I want to raise is uh, an example of a woman named Vanessa who is a middle-aged adult who's been living with and providing, um, we've put the a question, the scenario up on the screen so you can see it, um, regular household support for her mother who has diabetes and hypertension. She's been doing this for a couple of years. But she lost her job as a restaurant server due to COVID. And so she and her mother have relied on unemployment benefits and SSI. And Vanessa's not sleeping or eating well. Her physical health has declined. She wants to resume working, but she worries about bringing the virus home. Probably a very common thing you all hear. So let me turn this over first to Kathy. How would you approach a conversation with Vanessa about ways to attend to her own emotional and physical health and supports? Well, you may have to consider strategies for helping uh, Vanessa find assistance, and this can be done directly by conducting an assessment to first see if her mother is eligible for any additional services, particularly at this time. There's increased services, you know, around meals and 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 um, other uh, consumable supplies that might be available, um, and uh, housing support. Right. And also, um, Vanessa should be looking at ex uh, all of the unemployment or extended benefits that she might be eligible for, too. That's really helpful. And Erin, do you want to also address this in terms of what, how would you approach this conversation with her? Absolutely. I think in addition to the formal resources that Kathy so beautifully laid out, I think um, I would encourage her to recognize the resources she already has. So, you know, we, we talked last time about the critical nature of physical activity and exercise and socialization and in, in taking care of herself um, and being able to kind of take care of her own basic health needs. Um, certainly as a psychologist, um, just about anybody who comes to see me, we talk about physical activity. We talk about uh, diet and, you know, eating junk food and loading up on alcohol is what a lot of people are doing right now and gaining the COVID-19. Um, and so the degree to which she can take care of herself um, is, is critical in, in this regard. And, and so um, <clears throat> folks on the call might ask, you know, is there anybody who can help you? Do you have family members or friends or neighbors who might be able to help with your mom um, as well as um, 
as well as for for her own support. Right, that's helpful because I think sometimes people don't think about maybe reaching out to other folks, so encouraging them to ask for help. That's really helpful, Erin. So let me get off for another scenario. So we'll switch to someone named Juan. Juan is a widower. He has macular degeneration and emphysema, and he lives at home by himself. Due to his health in Arizona, due to his health issues and limited English proficiency, he relies on help from his oldest daughter, Maria Elena, who lives does not live in the same community. She lives in L.A., so she helps with his medical care, his appointments. She communicates with his health plan and primary care provider. For those of you who work at a health plan, you'll recognize this. And she does more for him. She used to travel monthly to handle her dad's care, but COVID-19 has meant she's had to juggle this from afar. So one question to pose to all of you is, what recommendations do you have for Maria Elena as a daughter who's providing care from a distance? Even people, you know, maybe you've experienced people who live in rural communities who aren't close to folks. What do you recommendations do you have for them? And I, I think I'll start with you, Brian. Yeah, definitely. This is an, a very common scenario nowadays where the person who is maybe even the primary caregiver for the individual doesn't live with them and might not even live in the same state. And they'll go through remarkable means like traveling across states to provide the support that's needed. And in this case, we have a language barrier on top of everything. Mm -hmm. So. Of course, the first thing we're going to do is do the assessment that we're always doing in what kind of needs are present here and what kind of strengths does the person have. In particular, it can be easy to discount someone who doesn't speak the dominant language as not having strengths or not being able to communicate, and even family members can assume that when they might actually have more ability than we think. The other thing is we might be relying on only one or two people when in fact there's other people or other groups out there that might be able to provide support. So we need to be aware of what the local resources are, especially for folks that speak Spanish, and see if we can link the, the patient and the caregiver with these resources. Is there some kind of a volunteer program or um, you know any other sort of program where there would be Spanish-speaking support in the community? Or is there even a doctor's office that has individuals who speak Spanish, or if we have to, to rely on a translation service. Lots of options where Juan can actually advocate for himself to get that translation service, and Maria Elena can provide some support you know, at a distance rather than having to travel there physically. That's really helpful. Kathy, how about you? Do you have recommendations or things you want to share? You know, oftentimes the, um, the oldest child does get trapped into the role of managing the parent's health and activities. And uh, sometimes the siblings are just fine with that arrangement. But in this case of being a long-distance caregiver, um, I think we really want to talk with uh, Maria Leanna to find out whether or not there are other uh, siblings that uh, live closer by who might be able to help with the task. And I, this is not really not something that's top of mind, but I thought you know I would mention it too, that she's making a lot of arrangements on the medical side and to, to make sure that she... Um, is familiar with the patient portal within the health system that might help um, expedite some of these tasks, uh, such as making appointments and refilling prescriptions by mail and so on. And, you know, I echo the, the, um, the sentiment that rural areas do not have as many formal services available, but there might be other support services in, in uh, churches and civic organizations, even through libraries and school community service programs, I realize these are, you know, not, may not be available at this time, but um, their sources of support come from um, surprising um, uh, places 
right. uh, in rural communities. Right. So casting a wide net um, for those who um, advocate or you know serving this population that's that's helpful. And Erin, how about you? Yeah, you know, so I would I would add on to what Brian had mentioned about a Spanish-speaking uh, care coordinator or companion um, that, you know, he happens to live in Yuma, Arizona. Yuma is 50% Hispanic, so um, in all likelihood, there are some other folks who may be bilingual, neighbor perhaps, um, who may be able to help out as well. Um, and then, too, Kathy mentioned, uh, you know, having access to the, the patient portal. I actually wonder if Juan could or already knows how to use a tablet or a smartphone. Um, it's possible with FaceTime that his daughter might be able to virtually go with him um, to appointments. Uh -huh. um, I've had uh, family members join into um, appointments with me, both virtually and in the, in the clinic. Um, and perhaps, you know, an Alexa-type system that uh, Maria Elena can set up in the home that would allow her to check in on her dad through a voice system. So if, if technology was too complex for him, she might be able to set it up for him um, and, uh, and be able to check on him um, without his needing to be able to press lots of buttons. So there are a lot of technology options with regards It's really that. helpful, very helpful concrete suggestions from all of you. Thank you. So let's move to one more scenario before we open it up to have some questions. So June is a 75-year-old woman whose husband is 85 and he has dementia. Last year he fell, he hit his head, and he had a head injury. He recovered physically, but his cognitive ability was such that June couldn't take care of him at home anymore, so she placed him in a dementia unit last summer. And since then she's really struggled with sort of the grief and guilt of that choice for months. She used to spend hours with him daily at the facility and help with his care, but now with COVID-19, she hasn't seen him since March, and she's really feeling depressed. She talks to him on the phone every couple of days, but she's still grieving the situation. So the question to, to you is, how can care managers or care coordinators or providers who, um, who, who are supporting June and her husband, what can they do to help June cope? So let's start with you, Erin. Sure. So last time when we talked a little bit about, um, you know, coping during COVID, we talked about the idea of identifying what's in your control and what's out of your control. And it sounds like June is feeling guilty about a lot of things that are outside of her control. She can't visit her husband, um, and that is not her fault. Um, and so being able to identify what she can control and what she can't control and being able to let go of some of that guilt. And at the same time, since she's spending less time with him day to day, it might be a great time to think about her own grief. So uh, losing someone with dementia bit by bit by bit over the years is an ongoing grief process, and it can be excruciatingly painful because it's not only what you're losing day to day, um, but also what you anticipate losing. And, and then she lost this time with him. Um, so she may be able to take this opportunity now that she has more time to herself to move through the tasks of grieving. Um, and there's a, there's a great resource that Alana will, will post and make sure that you all have on the tasks of grieving on our Rush CEO website. Um, there's a, a video for, for people who are grieving, and there's some guides um, to, to help people through the tasks of grieving. So that once she's able to better manage her own grief, it's possible that when she's actually able to see him again in person, she may be in a better place and be able to better engage um, for him. And um, so um, 
recognizing that even when you've got someone, when, when you have it, when you place a loved one into an assisted living or a nursing home facility, caregiving doesn't end. And sure. um, for for many of those folks, and so being able to to be sure that you're attending to to those needs as well. Thank you, Erin. And Brian, I'm sure this is a common situation that you've um, encountered too. Would you mind sharing some of your thoughts on this? It is indeed a common situation, and I really just want to echo what Aaron was saying about what I like to call the two G's, grief and guilt. They are the two biggest emotions that I find a lot of caregivers going through, especially during times of transition for a loved one. So I think first off, we need to label what these emotions are, that these are grief, this is grief and this is guilt. Oftentimes, grief in particular is hard for us to wrap our minds around because the person hasn't actually died, but anytime there's a loss, people can experience grief. And I do think that's that's taking place here. So validating these emotions as what they are, giving them a name, you know, making sure that people know these are normal and some people don't need any support for that. They're fine and other people do. And there's nothing wrong with that either way. I think most people would benefit from having some kind of support and we can normalize that too. So we can look at June's strengths. We can look at her resources and see where can we meet her needs? You know, is there counseling available through her insurance? Is there, you know, maybe an activity that she's been wanting to do, that she's been putting off. Maybe there's a local support group she would enjoy connecting with or something else entirely, just something that's right for her to try to process those emotions that she's feeling. And the other thing that, you know, Erin also mentioned is this connection doesn't end, even though it can feel like it, it does at some point. If we're not able to interact with someone physically and give them a big hug, that's painful, especially when we're used to doing that. You know, so again, validating that for the person and then focusing on the need to do something that still connects, but in a different way. You know, a lot of people are saying that it's not social distancing, it's physical distancing. And we need to remember yeah. that. How can yeah. we connect socially even though we can't physically connect? So maybe that would mean a video call. Maybe that would mean calling the staff to get an update now and then and really advocating for what this person needs. Maybe it would be about finding a safer way to meet in person, like meeting through a window or meeting in an outside space. It may seem silly, but it's a powerful way for people to connect to someone when they feel like they have no other way. That doesn't sound silly at all. It sounds like really wise advice. Um, and let me bring you into this conversation, Kathy. What do you think? What, what are some of the ideas? I'm sure you, again, have a lot of experience with the organization you're with to help address this. Yeah, I think um, I'd just like to echo um, what Brian has raised about support groups and um, and and a bit of um, advocacy, you know, in, instruction on advocacy to um, to have uh, access to have meetings either through video chats and so on. And support groups are, you know, are many of all of them are now meeting by either phone or um, by video chat. So to make them more accessible to everybody. And I would uh, urge um, if you're looking for um, who's doing what to call the either 211 or the area agency on aging and you're in that particular community. Um, I just, uh, just parenthetically uh, had a, a, a work colleague of mine uh, on the East Coast uh, mention that for the first time in, in uh, four, over four months, she finally was able to see her mother and, and did exactly what Brian had mentioned, which was the facility 
did arrange to have a meeting uh, through um, a glass door. The door was closed, obviously, but she was able to see her mother for the first time uh, in four and a half months, and it was um, may, it just calmed the situation down significantly. Now, I want to say that when we are dealing with nursing homes, if you happen to be in a hot spot um, for COVID, um, it's it's um, it's a it's a very tense time, and so. Um, there may or may not be this kind of access or time available, depending upon what's going on in the nursing home, to be able to facilitate um, uh, these kinds of arrangements. Um, but uh, by pushing a little bit, you might, you'll be—I think—the family would be very surprised that they'll they would be able to um, access information about how their relative is doing um, if they just did a, a bit of advocacy on that account. Great. Very helpful. So let me turn to another question um, that's come up um, a lot uh, in, in both last webinar and, and uh, from what we're learning. What advice do you have for helping a family caregiver support an older adult who's depressed? So we talked a little bit about earlier, and Aaron and folks talked about this, but let me again turn to you, Erin, for some advice on what you would do to help this caregiver. Absolutely. The care person they're caring for is depressed. Yeah, well, so a, a couple of thoughts. One is, is to make sure that it's depression, because certainly a number of, of physical and emotional issues can look like depression. Um, and so wanting to make sure that there's a, a clear medical uh, diagnosis of, of depression. Um, and um, if that's the case, then at home, one can, again, as I mentioned, encouraging physical activity, appropriate diet, appropriate sleep, trying not to, to do too much daytime napping, which can happen a lot during uh, with depression, increasing social engagement, which, again, as, as Brian mentioned, um, socially connected, physically distant, um, and anything that they, that they used to enjoy. I think um, engaging in, in activities can help behavioral activation, can help counter depression, um, and also acknowledging that energy and interests might be barriers and can be rather challenging. Um, so being assuring that you are patient and encouraging rather than, than blaming. Um, I think the other thing to be aware of is we talked a little bit, I think, last time, too, about depressive contagion. Um, so if you are around someone who is depressed a lot of the time, um, it can be rather depressing, and so assuring that the family caregiver is taking care of themselves and making sure that they're also spending time virtually or otherwise with people who are not depressed um, to, to minimize that likelihood of, of contagion. And then, if possible, see a mental health professional. There are so many opportunities to do this virtually now um, that it makes it so much easier. You don't have to worry about getting the person up and dressed and out of the house, mm -hmm. um, that you can do that, um, that right in the home and potentially have a, a really helpful consultation um, with someone who you may not have had access to before. I know I'm, I'm getting a, a consult for my dad with a geriatric neurologist in a different state because we can right now. Right. And this is a great opportunity for people who may not have access to a, a geriatric mental health provider in their neighborhood. Um, but my gosh, you can access one from anybody from anywhere sure. right now. So one of, sure. one of the upsides of COVID. Yep. Thank you. Brian, how about you? 
What, what my, how do you advise folks? My, yeah, my goodness, it's it's such an overwhelming situation when you're already a caregiver, you're you're already providing a great deal of support, and now the older adult you're caring for is depressed as well. So really having empathy for the caregiver's situation is important. I think the caregiver needs to learn as much as they possibly can about dementia, or excuse me, depression, to help counteract some of the common myths that we have about this. You know, we often feel like people who are depressed just, they're not trying hard enough, they don't care, they're being difficult, things like this. The truth is that depression is a very cruel condition. It actually takes from people everything they need in order to feel better. So, for example, a, a wonderful treatment, as Aaron mentioned, for depression and a lot of other mental health conditions is physical activity, exercise. And guess what depression takes away from you? Your energy, your motivation, your sleep, you know, anything that you would need to feel better, depression tries to steal that from you. So understanding that helps you come at this from a real point of empathy where you can focus on getting the person the help they need and not blaming them for the, their own issues that they're encountering. Great. Thank you. So let me turn now to just another question. Um, so this comes up a lot, and there's probably a lot more people who are first-time caregivers. So what advice do you have for supporting people who, are, who may be first-time caregivers? Erin, you want to? start us off? Sure. So I think one of, the, one of the key issues to begin with is just acknowledging you're a caregiver. Um, this is really important, particularly for spouses um, or adult children who just, it's my role. I'm a spouse. I'm not a caregiver. I'm a wife. Um, and uh, so acknowledging that caregiving role so that they can begin to access um, resources that are available um, and when, you know, I think we, we talked quite a bit, um, and, and Brian did such a beautiful job of talking last time about the, the importance of having an assessment um, to identify their needs. Maybe they need occupational therapy for helping older adults with dexterity issues or physical therapy to help caregivers learn effective transfers from bed to chair. So first acknowledging they're a caregiver and then making sure that we have a, a comprehensive assessment of what might be needed for Great. the caregiver and for the care recipient. Sure, sure. How about you, Kathy? I'd like to pick up on the um, what Erin is saying about the assessment. I think this is really a critical piece, uh, particularly for first-time caregivers, is to conduct an assessment that covers both the direct, the direct care for the individual um, that they're, they may be caring for now and planning issues um, such as legal and financial issues to and what eligibility um, may be uh, in play for services for the person with the disability, uh, and self-care issues for the caregiver, um, looking at stress and depression and physical health and so on. We ne you need to you know, meet people where they are in terms of what is their concern today, but also to give them sort of an inkling of the things that they might want to be thinking about for the future uh, as well. Um, one of the other issues when you're dealing with somebody who's a first-time caregiver, and, and first-time caregivers become caregivers in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's gradual and sometimes it's a very sudden kind of occurrence. But um, going back to just the hands-on care for just a moment, I did want to mention that there's a variety of um, videos that are directed towards and, um, and targeted for family caregivers because oftentimes you just don't know how to do a lot of the basic um, ADLs and IADLs in someone's life and, and also medical tasks that you might be care, um, called to, 
to do. And we put together um, some video, some lists of video resources that can be used with caregivers. They're all vetted resources uh, that have also information, follow-up information, tip sheets about what the video is about. And so they're available and they, they should be uh, in the resource list for this day too. Thank you. That's helpful. And just one other just follow-up question, Kathy, before I turn it over to you, Brian. Who conducts this assessment? Are, are, do health plan staff conduct also include not just the enrollee but also the uh, family caregiver? Um, it, de it depends on the setting. Um, the the um, plans, if it's a health plan, um, the social worker may conduct this type of assessment that does have some questions that are uh, to the caregiver. Depends on the program uh, and the assessment that's used within a particular context. In the community for caregiver support services, it's usually sort of flipped a little bit where the caregiver is the primary client for services like ours, and secondarily we'll ask questions about um, the person they're caring for, what's the functioning issue, the main kinds of health conditions and concomitant kinds of behavior if that's, um, you know, an issue for, uh, for, the, uh, for that particular that's person. That's really helpful. Thanks, Kathy. And then Brian, do you want to just add, before we switch to the next question, you want to add advice you have for supporting people who are first-time caregivers? Definitely. I mean, I feel like Aaron and Kathy captured it well that the first point is acknowledging that you are a caregiver or if you prefer the term care partner. You can use either of those terms to search online and find other resources in the area and you can also ask about those things that your local community supports. Um, education is a big part of a first-time caregiver's life. Learning about the person's diagnosis, learning about what they need and what they don't need, when to offer help and when not to offer help. So these are things we can kind of put on the caregiver's radar that even though you may not always need to jump in and provide support right away, you can be doing this kind of assessment or having this kind of discussion with your loved one to figure out what's needed and when and how to provide it. And we want caregivers to understand that although it could be a sprint, it's probably not. You're probably running a marathon in many cases, especially with this COVID-19 thing. It certainly feels more like a marathon than a sprint. Right. So we need to be doing some planning for the future as well. And as early as possible, thinking about some of the things that may happen down the road, some of the difficult choices and uh, situations that we may encounter and, and how we might approach them, and having that conversation with your loved ones so everyone can be on the same page. Thank you all. So let me just turn over a couple more questions before we open up to the audience. So this has come up a lot, and accessing supports and services are going to be online as Kathy opened up. Uh, our, our, our webinar today is saying they're going to continue online for some time, and access technology can be a challenge for some families, um, particularly some low-income families who don't access to the Internet or have tablets or whatnot. What can you do to make sure caregivers are able to use the technology they have access to, um, the necessary uh, technology? So, Kathy, would you help us address this? Yeah, technology. Um, the, the, you know, it's it's good to remember that the majority of uh, family caregivers do use some form of technology in their daily life, and you know, we see that caregivers, um, you know, are really uh, the the lion's share between the ages of 45 and 65. Um, understanding that caregivers come in all all ages, um, and this is going to accelerate, um, particularly as a result of um, of COVID. 
uh, in the area of healthcare with telehealth encounters um, that are accelerating at, at a, a bright pace. And I think it behooves all of us to make sure that um, everyone has access who really wants access. Um, and that's a larger issue than we can individually solve, but we may be able to, to um, advocate and also refer to the organizations that are all involved in, in uh, providing access uh, for uh, either low-income um, or older populations. So I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. So there, there is a learning curve. Um, if you are using technology, it's always good to be able to provide that information up front, send it out before you're doing uh, uh, an encounter and make sure that they understand uh, where to call and how to use the technology that you're employing. It's also good if you know if, there's, if someone is having a particular a problem, if, if there's somebody else in the family that might be able to, to help just because of the in-person encounters that are not going on. Um, uh, as before, that we really have to rely on some um, secondary helpers in this uh, situation. We do have some information we put together for the, um, the first um, webinar, which is on low-cost Internet access, in, in other words, providing that um, Internet connection, and also ways in which you might be able to find a lower-cost um, uh, technology. I have to say that... Um, Senior centers have really been doing a lot of work in um, uh, educating older adults on the use of technology by having these uh, classes in the senior centers. And, um, and I think when you um, think about it now, most of those classes are online. So there are some programs that are really quite, um, we're trying to get quite inventive um, by having some drop-in um, hours for by phone that people can talk to somebody about how they can get uh, connected. So you see that um, everyone is pivoting and trying to find ways in which to help people access um, those resources that are in their own home communities. And again, by calling 211 or the Area Agency on Aging or even just directly some of the senior centers in your area, um, you may find that there's some of these resources that are out there that can point people to maybe even more local resources and initiatives that are going on in those home communities so we can make sure that people do have access to the information that they need, including um, communication with their health care providers. That's a lot. Thank you. And, and actually, just before I turn to the last question, Aaron, I know um, you've mentioned before, doesn't Rush have, haven't you all prepared some materials to help older adults learn how to use smartphones and things like that? So you've got some fact sheets and materials to help folks? We do. Um, and uh, as of yesterday, the Rush Center for Excellence in Aging also just funded um, one of our occupational therapists who's going to be creating some um, online modules for how to access telehealth um, and in a number of different ways, and we'll be co-designing that material with older adults. So there are um, a number of resources, both sort of PDF version uh, for people to access electronically as well as uh, video versions. Great. So people know that's a resource out there. Great. So one last question. Um, uh, this has come up also. What are the key components to conducting a wellness or a sick visit over the phone or video? This is becoming, telehealth has become increasingly important. Erin, um, I wonder if you could share a little bit with us about your experience and what you think is helpful to do this. Sure. So, um, 
prior to starting your, your video visit or telephone visit, either one, making sure that you're prepared. Um, it might be helpful when you first get started to script out some of your outreach calls um, and making sure that you're thinking about how um, your members or your caregivers feel comfortable when you first connect. Um, you know, making sure that you're clear about who you are, why you're calling, where you're calling from. Um, and then some really basic logistics that um, I, I learned from a colleague at, at Harvard who's been doing telemedicine now for years. Um, some really, really common things that we might not think about. And so if we think about it as lights, camera, action. So lights, making sure that both you and the, um, the person you're speaking to are well lit. Um, and wearing plain clothing and plain background as much as possible, it's amazing how much bandwidth um, for internet gets taken up when you've got really busy patterns or a lot going on behind you. Um, camera, making sure you're looking at the camera, not at your keyboard or your screen. It's kind of like when any of us have gone to the doctor and the doctor's typing away and not looking at you and you don't feel connected at all. So remembering to look at the camera. Um, and making sure that um, you can see the whole face. I ha I've had a number of patients who we start psychotherapy and I can see their forehead. So we have to make sure that, that the camera is, is, um, is tilted correctly for both you and for the person you're speaking to. Um, and then action, making sure that you're using your best bedside manner, paying attention to what else you see on the screen. So, attend so one of the beautiful things about being able to do a video visit is that you can see how is their hygiene. You might be able to get some glimpses into what the living room looks like. Are they cleaning it? Um, are, can you see any safety concerns like loose rugs or chairs? Um, and one other key piece about this is considering privacy. So um, making sure that the person you're speaking to is in the most private place possible. Um, and if they want other people in the room with them, um, that, that that's up to them. Um, and uh, so, so attending to those privacy issues. And, and I noticed that there was a question that came up in the, in the chat about some doctors not um, having platforms that allow for multiple people to be uh, to be present, and so I just wanted to make a real quick comment about that. There's some real creative ways that you can get around that with, um, so for example, the, the platform that we use um, doesn't allow for an extra party either, but we've had um, a family member who's on the telephone, on speakerphone, um, next to the older adult, um, or vice versa, um, if, you're, if you're doing uh, work with caregivers. Um, and so think about the number of different pieces of technology that may be in the room to be able to participate in those kinds of conversations. And again, lights, camera, action, the one thing I didn't mention is sound. Um, we do sound checks on these webinars before um, each time and making sure that um, your sound is effective and making sure that they've turned off their TV or radio or whatever else might be going on um, in the background to the degree that they can. That's great. I thought the life camera action is something people will remember. Terrific. Thank you all so much. And now I'm going to turn it over because a number of questions come in, um, and I want to make sure we have a little bit of time to answer those. So uh, thank you so much. And let me turn it over to Alana so you can moderate the Q&A. Thank you, Carol. And thank you, Erin, Brian, and Kathy for sharing all of this valuable information. All right. So I'll get started. Um, Erin, maybe I'll start with you for this question. Um, we had a number of questions come in related to handling family tension um, and tension between members of the same family who may be providing care. What recommendations do you have for balancing tension between family members or caregivers, such as when people have varying opinions on safety measures? Erin, um, I'll start with you, but um, 
uh, Brian and Kathy, you can also weigh in too. Yeah, so that can be um, a complicated situation, and um, I think it would be helpful to identify uh, the roles of family members. And if the if the older adult is capable of identifying the roles that he or she wants the the children is in most of the cases when there's there's family tension around that, um, but sometimes with a spouse as well. Um, and having a, a conversation about what the issue actually is and um, and whose um, whose agendas may be getting triggered. So it may be that there's a safety concern about mom driving, but the concern really isn't about mom driving. It's a concern that the adult son wants to be able to use the car, and if mom's driving, he can't. So seeing to the degree that you can identify agendas, to the degree that you can identify what's meeting the need of the older adult themselves, um, and if you can help to navigate um, what those needs actually are, and a critical factor there is what matters most to the older adult in that situation. Um, and is it possible that that person can, uh, the, the care recipient, um, can, can help to direct their own care and, and can help to direct the, the family conflict as well. I think identifying whether we're talking about a longstanding conflict of, you know, it's always been Bobby against Susie, and no matter what Bobby says, Susie's going to you know, pick the opposite. Or you're talking about two people who are really invested in providing the highest quality care and have different opinions about what that is. And, and that can be a different situation to navigate. I'd be really interested in Brian's response to this, since you do, Brian, a lot of um, more family work. Yes, I certainly encounter things like this pretty frequently. In fact, a lot of times I'm meeting with the caregiver in, and maybe not the patient at all. And oftentimes there's different opinions in the family about what should be done or how it should be done, when it should be done. And I, I mean, I think you hit it right on the head that a lot of it comes down to past history. For example, I, I could think of a, a couple instances where there were two siblings and one was providing the vast majority of the care. One wasn't providing any care at all or very little. And there was resentment between them because of this. But there's often a good reason for that. And in some cases, it's even things like childhood abuse or trauma, things in the past that are coming back up now. And kind of helping to explore those, looking at the past dynamics and relationships, seeing what's new, what's not, why is this being triggered in this way right now? If we can figure out some of this, then we might be able to find a way to move forward. This can be very difficult to do on our own, and sometimes therapy or even some kind of family therapy could be helpful, um, but it might be worth exploring. A couple other things I've come across frequently one is that there's trouble in the family accepting the diagnosis, especially if the person has some dementia and maybe other people in the family haven't had a direct experience of that, and maybe they have no idea what's going on at all. So to hear that all of a sudden the person's freedom needs to be restricted just seems unacceptable to them. Sometimes they need to understand or even experience firsthand the person's impairment so they can understand, oh, wow, we really do need some support here. Another thing I've found to be particularly helpful is that siblings and often don't want to be the bad guy. You know, they don't want to speak up to their parent. And indeed, it may be completely incompatible with their culture or their, their time when they were growing up to speak back to an elder or restrict their freedom in any way. 
So sometimes we need someone outside of the family to be the bad guy and really say, this is what's needed and here's why. You know, maybe there's a specific safety concern and we have to address this. Um, oftentimes our doctors will say, you know, let me be the bad guy. Come bring them to me. Let's have this conversation. And if anybody needs to be mad at somebody, let's let them be mad at me because at least I'm removed from the situation. Thank you so much, Brian and Aaron. Those are great responses. Um, Kathy, maybe I'll start with you on the next one. Uh, we did have a number of questions come in around caregiver burnout. So what kind of recommendations do you have for caregivers to avoid and address burnout, especially for caregivers who are now balancing full-time caregiving along with other responsibilities? I think, um, you know, we, we see this, uh, we're seeing this more now um, as uh, we're entering, a, you know, an extended period um, of um, sheltering in place, uh, at least in California. And we're getting a lot of requests for um, respite services now, uh, even though um, there's safety uh, concerns and issues. But the, the basis of the request for respite in time away is because there is a lot of burnout that's happening um, with um, care that's being provided 24-7 without the benefit of having other kinds of, um, going to other kinds of community programs. So it's really carving out that, that time for yourself and the, you know, the parameters for being able to, um, you know, take a half an hour or even 15 minutes once a day to get out and take a walk or to do something that, um, you know, puts your, uh, puts you more back into balance. But it's also, um, some, uh, working with the family caregiver in order to um, be able to articulate what their needs are to say to other family and friends that are uh, maybe involved in the care, this is what I need now, and and make a direct ask. And sometimes we uh, forget that it's a it's hard to ask other people for help, and we always encourage that by trying to work with the family to articulate what it is that they do need, who might be in their care constellation in their community that they can ask for that because oftentimes people want to um, to help, they just can't. Um, aside from that, there's a number of different um, resources out there that will help with um, meditation. There's a whole lot of app, apps that are free to use. Um, other uh, programming that's going on that um, offers activities, um, of course this is online, but offers an opportunity to do an activity in partnership with the person that they're caring for. Um, there's a number, a number of programs that are coming out of arts organizations um, that gives an opportunity for someone to be, for the person who you're caring for to perhaps be involved in a program, um, but also be in the the, in, the program is delivered in your living room and you might have an opportunity to kind of get away for a few minutes and um, do your own self-care during that time. So it's a struggle because we don't have the usual and customary respite opportunities, but we can try to carve out those respite opportunities uh, in, in, by using other kinds of as means to do so. Thank you, Kathy. So I think we just have time for one more question. Um, if you have any additional questions, please feel free and submit them um, here, and uh, we will be working on a, a Q&A document later. Um, so 
Brian, I think I'll start with you on this one. Um, this is an important one. Given the systemic racism and trauma faced by people of color, what additional considerations do you have for approaches to supporting caregivers? Yeah, definitely. It's a pretty heavy topic, and I'm certainly not an expert on it, but I was doing a little bit of literature review before we got on the call, and I came across a meta-analysis of 116 studies that found that people who are in an ethnic minority position tend to suffer lower levels of baseline health. Right from the beginning, they're overstressed and undercared for. And they often have to provide more care, but at the same time, they often have stronger familial obligations and better support networks. So they sometimes describe that care as being less stressful to provide. But then again, you also see studies saying the opposite. So it's clear that we need more research on this as a whole, and there's tremendous variability based on where someone lives, their socioeconomic class, and countless other factors. But I think what we can all agree on is that if someone is having to spend time and energy even just mental and emotional energy, um, fighting back against things like systemic racism, a history of trauma, or even intergenerational trauma. They're not going to have as much energy left over to provide care, and they're going to be at a much greater risk for burnout. So we need to be aware of that anytime we're speaking with a population that has historically been victimized or oppressed. We need to be aware that they may not be as willing to engage right now. And we need to not expect them to try to solve these problems because, frankly, they have enough on their plate. Any of us that have privilege need to use that to speak out for the changes in policies and the new programs, the new organizations that are needed to provide the support that's so desperately needed right now. Thank you so much, Brian. And Erin, anything else that you would add? Sure, just, just briefly that um, in the current climate, the experience of racism can lead to decreased utilization of healthcare. So this is both for the caregiver and the care recipient because healthcare is one of the historical perpetrators of racism. So then on top of that, you add fears of deportation for undocumented people and many families will just likely go without care altogether. So this makes the virtual healthcare that many of us can provide that much more important. Whether it's telephone, we're seeing a lot of concerns about technology, even if people don't have internet or a smartphone, even telephone and reaching out and the, the outreach that all of you do, um, that doing all that we can to maximize feelings of safety and support when uncertainty reigns supreme right now. So thank you all for the work that you do. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare and Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes a full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated and coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about the current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.